0: The former leader of the right-wing extremist group, the Proud Boys, gets 22 years in prison for his role in the January 6th Capitol riot. It's Wednesday, September 6th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the latest COVID variant initially worried scientists.
1: When something heavily
2: mutated comes out of nowhere, there's a lot of uncertainty. and There's this risk that it's dramatically different and then it changes the nature of the pandemic.
0: But new research, some of it done in Boston, shows it might not be that big of a problem. Also this hour, Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Ukraine. And the ongoing strikes against Hollywood studios have actors and writers searching for ways to make money.
3: I had made snow globes as a hobby before this all started. I used to give people snow globes as gifts. Once the strike started, I decided maybe I should monetize this.
0: In sports, Red Sox lose. Sunny and humid today near 90. It's 7.01. Now the news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden leaves tomorrow for India to attend the Group of 20 Industrialized Nations Summit. Biden is expected to push other G20 leaders to do more for developing nations. NPR's Asma Khalid says he hopes to engage India's Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, as an ally against China. The
5: Biden administration sees Modi's India really as a counterweight in the region. And I will say that even though the G20 has been fractured in recent years with Russia's war in Ukraine. Ukraine and uh, some of the increasing competition between the United States and China, Biden on this trip is really attempting to show that the United States remains committed to the G20 and that this administration believes there is still value in international economic cooperation.
4: NPR's Asma Khalid reporting. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has made a surprise visit to Ukraine. He is announcing that the United States will offer Ukraine a fresh tranche of aid. It's worth about $1 billion. New data indicate that the new COVID-19 booster vaccines will be able to protect people against a worrisome new variant. NPR's Rob Stein has the story.
6: The new variant is called BA-286. It's raised alarm because it contains so many mutations in the so-called spike protein the virus uses to infect cells. That raises concerns that the variant could evade the immunity people have from previous infections and vaccinations and render the new vaccines ineffective. But at least five new studies, including one released Wednesday by the vaccine maker Moderna, suggests that's not the case. The preliminary laboratory studies indicate antibodies generated by previous infections and vaccinations and the new boosters, would be able to neutralize the worrisome BA-286 variant. Rob Stein, NPR News.
4: Tennessee's Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn has a new rival in the 2024 election. A progressive Tennessee state representative who gained national attention for protesting for gun safety laws has announced a run for Blackburn's seat. From Member Station WPLN, Rose Gilbert has more.
7: State Representative Democrat Gloria Johnson is one of the so-called Tennessee Three, a trio of state lawmakers who faced expulsion after protesting for gun reform on the Tennessee House floor in the wake of the Covenant school shooting earlier this year. Now, she's preparing for a new challenge.
2: I'm not afraid to stand up to anyone when it comes to doing what's right for Tennessee, especially Marsha Blackburn. And that's why I'm running for Senate.
7: Senator Blackburn responded to Johnson's announcement by calling her a radical socialist. Johnson faces long odds with her challenge. Tennessee hasn't sent a Democrat to the Senate since 1995, and Democrats haven't won any statewide race since 2006. For NPR News, I'm Rose Gilbert in Nashville.
4: You're listening to NPR News. The former leader of the far-right group, the Proud Boys, has been sentenced to 22 years in federal prison. Enrique Tarrio was convicted for his role in the January 6th insurrection. The U.N.'s migration agency estimates more than 5 million people have been displaced in Sudan. Fighting between the country's military and a rival paramilitary group has left an unknown number of people dead and forced millions to flee. There have been nine ceasefires called in Sudan since mid-April. All of them have failed. Guatemala's much-criticized attorney general has met with the head of the Organization of American States. Maria Martin reports there are questions about the government's role in Guatemala's turbulent electoral process.
8: After her meeting with OAS Secretary General Luis Almagro, Guatemala's Attorney General Consuelo Porras says there's a campaign to discredit her and her Justice Department for investigating valid legal complaints. She rejected the accusation that her investigation of President-elect Bernardo Arevalo Semilla Party is an attempt at a legal coup. The Justice Department's only defending democracy and the legal order, says Boras. Meanwhile, indigenous groups are stepping up actions calling for her resignation. On Tuesday, Maya ancestral authorities performed a traditional ceremony outside the presidential palace asking for punishment for corrupt government officials. For NPR News, Amaria Martin. And in
4: Washington, I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This
0: is WBUR in Boston. The state attorney general today is expected to announce which, if any, of the 42 proposed ballot questions can take the next step forward. WBUR's Dave Fanef reports that 38 of those initiatives are proposed laws and four are proposed amendments to the state constitution.
9: One proposed law would legalize natural psychedelics like mushrooms. Another would eliminate the requirement that students pass the MCAS exam in order to graduate high school. For any initiative that's certified today, supporters would have to submit nearly 75,000 additional signatures for verification to the Secretary of State's office by December 6 in order to advance the question further. Legislature would then have until May 1st to enact the proposal. If it doesn't, More signatures would be needed to place the initiative on the November 2024 ballot. The process is a little different and lengthier for the four proposed constitutional amendments. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Dave Fanoff.
0: Pork producers will go before a Massachusetts judge today over a voter-passed referendum from 2016. That ballot question set living standards for pigs and bars the sale of pork from farms that do not meet those conditions. The law went into effect last month. Pork industry groups have brought two lawsuits to block that law. They say the new law goes against decades-old industry standards. Prosecutors are dropping the gun charges against Patriots cornerback Jack Jones. He was arrested in June after TSA found two guns in his carry-on luggage at Logan Airport. The Suffolk District Attorney says Jones agreed to one year of probation. He'll also serve 48 hours of community service related to the dangers of guns. The decision comes just days ahead of the team's season opener on Sunday. Federal officials are implementing a second disaster declaration in Vermont, the state was hit by historic flooding this summer. The US Department of Agriculture declaration also covers some parts of Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Farmers in those areas will be able to apply for more emergency loans. The assistance is in addition to a FEMA major disaster declaration issued by President Biden. It's 707.
10: We're funded by you our listeners and by Mass TLCs board-ready boot camp. Now accepting applications. Learn the skills and build the network needed for your board journey. MassTLC.org.
0: The Red Sox lost to the Tampa Bay Rays 8-6 to in 11 innings last night in Florida. The Sox and Rays will play again tonight. There's a heat advisory in effect today for areas west of I-95. It'll be mostly sunny and humid with a high near 90. Clear overnight with temperatures only falling to around 70. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 90s. Right now it's 75 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
10: WBUR supporters include Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3. The Portakalos family is headed to Greece from director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast only in theaters September 8th.
11: It's morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faudel. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. What is the right number of staff to care for people in nursing homes? President Biden's administration is changing the requirements, as we'll hear in a moment. First, we look abroad. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is visiting Kyiv. He laid a wreath at a cemetery honoring Ukrainian soldiers lost in the war.
12: And it's a war that continues. Shortly before he arrived, Russian cruise missiles targeted the city, though Ukraine says it shot them down. Look south on the map from Kiev, and you'd see the area where Ukrainian troops are struggling forward in a U.S.-backed counteroffensive.
11: NPR's Brian Mann is in Kiev. Hey there, Brian. Hi, Steve. Why is Blinken there now?
1: Well, his big goal is to signal Washington's support for Ukraine, despite questions about the pace of this counteroffensive and the huge cost. Some of that support's going to be tangible. A senior State Department official says Blinken will deliver roughly another billion dollars in new U.S. funding. That includes military, financial and humanitarian aid. And the official said the U.S. also wants to show they're aligned with Ukraine as this war now heads into the fall and winter.
11: Are they entirely aligned, though, given some of the tensions around the pace of this counteroffensive?
1: Yeah, you know, the Washington Post reported on a U.S. intelligence analysis that it predicted Ukraine likely won't reach its objectives this summer. That includes punching through to Melitopol, a city on the Sea of Azov, as part of an effort to divide Russia's army and cut off their supply lines. Some critics steve said that ukraine spread their forces too thin attacking in too many areas along the front line ukrainian officials here have pushed back on that they say they are gaining ground in the face of really strong russian defenses so the State Department official told reporters another goal of this visit will be for Blinken to get a really accurate assessment of what's happening on the ground. And he'll meet with President Zelensky today, who, in fact, is just back in Kiev after heading to the front lines and meeting with soldiers in the south and east.
11: Why don't you give us our own assessment here? What are you hearing from soldiers and military analysts in Ukraine?
1: Well, they do talk about progress around Robotny in the south. Ukraine appears to have really pushed through the toughest line of Russian minefields, trenches, and artillery batteries. They're right now trying to breach the next line of defenses around a town called Ferbov. A Ukrainian officer I spoke to was candid, Steve, about how harrowing this is. It's a tough fight. Ukrainians hope that if they can breach these lines, it'll create a bigger opening for them to move more quickly using those Western tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles we've been hearing about. One thing, though, the clock is ticking here. Once the autumn rains set in in the next few weeks, this battlefield is going to turn to mud, and, and that'll make movement even harder.
11: Brian, can you tell us about a development on the other end of Eurasia? We are following these reports that North Korea's leader will get on a train leave his country for a summit, a meeting where he'll have a chance to talk face-to-face with Vladimir Putin. What's going on?
1: The State Department official who briefed reporters described Putin's effort as scrounging for equipment and said this is another sign of Russia's desperation. And we have seen signs that Russia's military continues to struggle. They've lost a lot of soldiers and a lot of their best weapons have been used up. A British intelligence report, Steve, this week found Russia's army is now trying to recruit men from neighboring countries to fight Ukraine also has a problem with manpower, but Kyiv obviously has much broader international support. Ukrainian media have reported that President Zelensky is expected to travel to New York later this month for the U.N. General Assembly meeting, where he's expected to make the case for that support for Ukraine to continue.
11: Brian, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. That's NPR's Brian Mann. Some other news now. President Biden's administration wants more staff to be caring for people in nursing homes. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are changing the requirements for staff whenever Medicare is paying the bills. Javier Becerra is Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, which is overseeing this change. Mr. Secretary, welcome to the program.
13: Thanks, Steve, for having me.
11: So I get the principle. I've had loved ones in nursing homes. I want them to be well taken care of. And you're saying there should be more staff on hand in most nursing homes. But how big a change is this really?
13: It's a big change in the sense that the industry hasn't had to follow particular standards and it's been the wild, wild west when it comes to quality and accountability at nursing homes throughout the country. What we're simply saying is uh, we don't want wild, wild west when we send our loved ones. When you, Steve, sent your family members or saw them there, you want to make sure they're getting due care and the safety is there. That's all we're asking for is accountability.
11: Uh, with that said, and and granting that it seems that most nursing homes would have to add staff, it seems that many of them would only add a few people, a little. Is it really going to be that much of a change that people would notice when they're visiting or, or in a nursing home?
13: Well, if they're not having to make much change, then hopefully that means that they're actually offering quality services. But as we saw with COVID, uh, some 200 1,000 residents at nursing homes and workers at nursing homes died during this pandemic. Uh, that's unacceptable. Something was going on. We've heard people saying this for quite some time. And so this, it's time to act. Residents demand it. Uh, families of residents demand it. And taxpayers demand it because this is an industry that receives about $100 billion in federal taxpayer dollars when they apply for uh, some help with reimbursement of costs.
11: I've been interested in some of the reactions to this announcement. The industry itself has said they could use even more staff than you are requiring them to have, but they're also saying the U.S. is not going to help them pay for additional staff. Uh, How do you respond to that?
13: Well, it's it's interesting. First, we we do value all opinions, and that's what we sought when we were trying to craft this rule. And now that the rule is public uh, and we have an open comment period for the rule, we welcome all opinions. Again, the bottom line, we we need to enact enforceable standards for the nursing home industry. And if it were that tough, then someone's got to explain to me why Wall Street, private equity firms, are seeing this as a lucrative market to, to go into and buy up some of these uh, nursing homes. So something's going on. We know that too many people have died or not had a good outcome at nursing homes. And it, where they are having good outcomes, we want to elevate those nursing homes. But everyone, everyone should meet certain standards. Residents demand it, so do taxpayers.
11: It sounds like your position is there's plenty of money in the system. Uh, they don't need more money from the federal government. The average nursing home can afford to hire the extra 2 or 10 or 20 or 50 people.
13: What we are providing in this rule, uh, we're calling for an additional $75 million to help uh, both train and retain uh, nursing home staff. There is no doubt that the healthcare services industry overall hospitals, nursing homes, you name it, are having difficulty uh, with uh, particular staffing levels. Nurses are in big demand, no doubt. But at the same time, we think that if we can improve working conditions and if we can require that uh, at least one nurse be on staff uh, 24 seven at a nursing home, uh, if you're gonna call yourself a nursing home, you should have at least one nurse available at Mm -hmm. any time that you're operating. Uh, we think it's time to get to to these uh, standards.
11: Briefly, is there a special problem or a special risk with some of the smaller, more rural, more marginal uh, facilities?
13: Well, that's why we use something other than a one-size-fits-all approach here. Uh, We're going to phase this rule in. Rural communities have a harder time, and so we're trying to uh, address those concerns of some of those facilities, smaller nonprofit facilities, rural facilities. So it will be uh, an enforceable standard, but one that accommodates the needs of an industry that's very important.
11: Mr. Secretary, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Steve. Javier Bracera is secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services.
12: Enrique Tarrio, the former head of the far-right Proud Boys group, has been sentenced to 22 years in prison for his leading role in the violent events of January 6th. This despite the fact that Tarrio was not at the Capitol on that day. He was monitoring events from a hotel room in Baltimore. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef reports.
14: Tario expressed regret for his role just before receiving the sentence. He acknowledged that former President Donald Trump lost the 2020 election. But he still received the longest sentence of anyone who's been charged in connection to January 6th. U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly said that even though Tario was physically in another location that day, he was unmistakably the leader behind the Proud Boys' violent activities at the Capitol. The sentencing marks quite a downfall for Tario. It was during his time as national chairman that the Proud Boys' brand was launched quite suddenly into the American consciousness. Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. That was during the first presidential debate in 2020 when former President Donald Trump declined to disavow the street violence that the Proud Boys sought. After that, the far-right group became a mainstay at pro-Trump Stop the Steal rallies. The government's case took down Tarrio and his top lieutenants. It pinned seditious conspiracy charges against four of them. But it has not quelled a growing movement on the right that initially rallied around false claims of a stolen election. Cassie Miller is with the Southern Poverty Law Center.
15: There is a much broader authoritarian movement that's at work right now in the American political right. And, you know, the GOP needs to really vocally oppose this kind of growing
14: authoritarian segment of their party. Miller says that since January 6th, the Proud Boys have pivoted away from national issues to local activism. In doing so, they've grown and formed connections with conservative religious and parents groups. They've been involved in disinformation and harassment campaigns to undermine the safety of election workers, LGBTQ people, inclusive environments at schools, and abortion rights. Miller says it will take something other than criminal prosecutions to counter this iteration of their campaign.
15: We need communities to organize against groups like the Proud Boys and others, especially because so much of their activism
14: is at the local level. Four of Tario's co-defendants received sentences between 10 and 18 years. Just one defendant pleaded guilty in April of last year and still awaits his sentence. Odette Youssef, NPR News.
12: This is NPR News.
0: Good morning. I'm Rupa Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, Cuban officials say they've broken up a scheme in Russia to convince Cubans to fight in Ukraine in exchange for Russian citizenship. It's 7.20.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com.
1: After more than a decade as the lead singer of the band Churches, Lauren Mayberry is striking out on her own.
5: The gremlin back part of my brain that's like, yes, we must take the spotlight. out. And then there's the other part of me that when I got the tour poster through and it's just literally my face, I was like, oh, I'm going to be <laughs> sick. I can't. I
17: can't. I'm Ari Shapiro. We'll go backstage at
1: her first solo show on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today.
0: Sunny and humid today with a high near 90, right now it's 75 degrees in Boston.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. From Dementia Society of America committed to helping support brain health and the millions of Americans experiencing the syndrome known as dementia. Learn more at 1-800-DEMENTIA.org. From CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
12: And I'm Leila Faldil. The double strikes by screenwriters and actors against major Hollywood studios have been going on for months, and there's no end in sight. As the strikers wait for new contracts to be made, NPR's Mandelita El Barco reports on how some are getting by financially.
8: Late-night TV writer Jesse McLaren spends his days at home watching old episodes of Johnny Carson's Tonight Show on YouTube. And instead of writing jokes for Jimmy Kimmel Live, he now handcrafts snow globes, which he sells on Etsy for $299 a pop.
3: I had made snow globes as a hobby before this all started. I used to give people snow globes as gifts. Once the strike started, I decided maybe I should monetize this. So these are like custom snow globes of people's houses.
8: McLaren makes the miniature houses with a small 3D printer. He hand paints each house, then glues it onto a rubber stopper, which he then stuffs into a glass globe filled with distilled water, glycerin and snow globe flakes.
3: And it is incredibly frustrating. If you push it a little too hard, the whole thing gets sucked into the snow globe and makes a huge mess. And this is what I'm doing instead of, I was, I was writing on the
8: Oscars a few months ago, and now I'm doing this. With most TV and film productions shut down during the strike, nearly everyone in Hollywood has lost work. Whether or not they're in one of the striking unions, now they're hustling. Becky Portman has been giving Hebrew lessons to kids preparing for bar and bat mitzvahs. She also substitute teaches at a preschool. When the writers' strike began in May, she was furloughed as a showrunner's assistant for the Peacock series Killing It.
18: It is scary to have this gig economy and word of mouth job. Just trying to figure out how to make kind of an income in a temporary way
8: because we're not really sure how long this is going to last. Side hustles are nothing new for those trying to make it in Hollywood, says actor Michelle Alaire. She's a striking sag after member and the owner of the SNW Country Diner in Culver City. Actors and writers, we know how to
18: live poor. We know how to eat noodles. We know how to, like, scale down and live on basically nothing for months. We all know how to wait tables. We all know how to scrap and do other jobs and, you know, half the people are Uber drivers and they we know how to fill in the gaps.
8: Even so, on the picket lines outside the major studios these days, you find writers and actors like Taylor Orsi and Brisa Covarrubias.
19: I've been living in my parents' garage for the time being,
7: you know. My spouse and I are currently on food stamps. You know, sometimes it's Cheez-Its for lunch, but it's something.
17: We generally try not to believe in starving artists, but (laughs) one of our strategies is to truly help people learn how to manage their money.
8: Keith McNutt is executive director of the Entertainment Community Fund's Western Region. Since the strike began, they've given more than $5 million to 2,600 film and TV workers in need of emergency financial assistance.
20: People are coming
17: to us now with three-day evict notices, and that's serious. You have to, like, prioritize that immediately.
8: The fund also provides career counseling and mental health services for those anxious or depressed about supporting themselves sag AFTER announced it's extending its health care coverage for members who would otherwise lose it in October. And legislators in California have proposed a bill to extend unemployment benefits to any worker in the state who's on strike. Meanwhile, some Hollywood strikers are discovering more ways to use their talents for money. On the website Cameo, celebrities record personalized birthday greetings and other messages for people, sort of an updated version of signing autographs. Even the president of SAG-AFTRA is in on the act.
14: Hi Theo, it's me, Fran Drescher. Chase told me that you were feeling a little down in the zumps.
8: Cameo CEO Steven Kalana says last month there were 137% more performers signing up to record videos.
3: Some of them are actually joining for charity. Some are even putting their funds towards the SAG strike fund. Others are using this as a way to connect with their fans and not seeing this crossing the picket lines.
8: Quite a few are still hamming it up during the strike. Actor Evan Sloan had bit parts in Fear the Walking Dead and SWAT. Now he works full time for the company DAP Sports, where he gets paid to open packages of trading cards on a live stream.
21: You open these things for these people and it's pure entertainment. I'm having just as much fun. If you had told my five-year-old self that I would one day support myself opening up trading cards, I probably would have laughed in your face. I stumbled into something that fuels the inner child in me. So I feel like learning something new during this time and, and honing in on a different scale has been awesome for me.
8: Oh my God. And now more people in Hollywood are starting their own podcasts. There's one by late night TV host Stephen Colbert, John Oliver, Seth Meyers, and the two Jimmys, Fallon and Kimmel.
1: We are the Strike Force Five. Do you want to explain what this is? I what is explain. Strike Force 5? Hey, the reason we're
21: doing this is because we are financially supporting members of our staff. There are hundreds of members of our staffs, writers, you name it. Everyone that works on a TV show is out of work right now. And so all the money we make for this show goes to them.
8: Besides kibitzing with one another on the podcast, a few of the hosts are back on the stand-up comedy circuit. So are Kimmel's writers like Devin Field.
17: Thanks for coming up. We are... On strike. Yeah. We're very brave. That's Field at Comedy Works
8: in Denver in June. He performed with fellow Kimmel writer Troy Walker, who's now working on a comedy album. Walker says he can wait for the studios to come up with a fair contract.
21: I've only been at the show for two years. I'm still in my studio apartment. I drive an Accord. It's not new. So you're not going to squeeze me, really. This is somebody who, like, was driving Postmates in the Hollywood Hills with a law degree. (laughs) Like, I'll figure it out.
8: Another of Kimmel's writers, Jesse Joyce, is joining Walker and Field in Las Vegas next month to perform at Kimmel's Comedy Club. Joyce has also written a book about two guys connected to Abraham Lincoln's killer, John Wilkes Booth. And of course, there's Jesse McLaren and his snow globes. One Globe in his collection plays the theme of the Colbert Report, where McLaren was a field associate producer. During the strike, he's also worked on some animation projects. He made an Instagram filter for a country star and wrote TikTok ideas for a rapper.
3: I want to make jokes again, and I want snow globes to become just a weird niche hobby again. If you want to ask me how the snow globe business is. Oh, yeah. How, how is the snow globe business? It's shaky.
8: Ah, well, there's no business like snow globe business. Mandalita del Barco, NPR News. This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition. How some old malls left empty as shops move online are finding new life. It's 7.29.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo, providing shading systems for businesses and homes. Their design team can help you find window treatments for light, heat, privacy, and glare issues. Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com.
22: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on an unannounced visit to Kiev, where he's seeking to assess Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive against Russian forces.
13: Every time I'm here, I'm struck by the extraordinary bravery and resilience of the Ukrainian people, the Ukrainian forces, Ukraine's leadership.
22: Blinken is also expected to discuss ways to move shipments of grain from Ukrainian ports. Russian President Vladimir Putin has declined to rejoin a U.N. agreement that allows ships safe passage. The U.S. Capitol physician says there's no evidence Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell suffered a stroke or seizure disorder last week during an event in Kentucky. It was the second time in recent weeks McConnell has been unable to respond to a question raising concerns about his health. McConnell is 81 years old. He was on the Senate floor yesterday as senators returned from their August recess. Fellow Republican Senator Mitt Romney of Utah says he's not worried.
13: I don't think he's shown any inability to lead in negotiations, to raise money, to get Republicans elected, uh, to help guide our caucus. He's shown that he's been able to do that in the past. He's going to continue doing that in the future. Uh, So I'm firmly behind his uh, remaining as our leader.
22: The House returns from recess next week. This is NPR News. This is WB
0: War in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell wants Congress to study how artificial intelligence could affect children. She's joining a group of bipartisan attorneys general in asking Congress to figure out how the technology exploits children. In a letter, she says AI is already being used to create child sexual abuse material. She says that may make prosecution of those cases more difficult. The November matchup is set for a closely watched race, congressional race in Rhode Island. Former White House staffer Gabe Amo won the Democratic primary for the first district seat. He beat out 11 other challengers, getting 32 percent of the vote. If he wins in November, Amo would become the first person of color to represent Rhode Island in Washington. He'll face Gary Leonard in the general election. A new blood bank in Newton aims to help our four-legged friends. The veterinary emergency group aims to ease what the company says is a severe shortage of canine blood. Jesse Brown is the company's blood bank director and says donors are needed. And I
23: think what some people don't realize is from one canine blood donation, we can get anywhere from two to four units. And so one donation can actually save multiple
0: pets. In general, Brown says a dog has to be healthy, at least 50 pounds, and up to date on their shots to donate blood. The donation process itself takes about 45 minutes. It's 7.32.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now.
0: The Red Sox rallied last night in St. Petersburg to force the game against the Rays into extra innings, but then they lost on a walk-off home run in the 11th inning. The final, Rays 8, Red Sox 6. The teams will wrap up their series tonight. Clear skies and humid today with high temperatures near 90. Areas West of I-95 have a heat advisory in effect. Tonight, temperatures drop to the low 70s and skies stay clear. Tomorrow, the heat wave gets even worse. We'll have highs near 94, and it'll be sunny. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. You're at WBUR.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Subaru, featuring the new 2024 Subaru Crosstrek Wilderness with off-road capability and 9.3 inches of ground clearance designed for adventure seekers. Learn more at Subaru.com wilderness. And from Amgen, a biotechnology company working to fight the world's toughest diseases. In a new era of human health, AMGEN is dedicated to accelerating the pace of change to push beyond what's known today. This is NPR.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep,
12: And I'm Leila Faudel. It sounds like a chapter out of a Cold War era novel. Cuba says a covert and as of yet unnamed group has been recruiting citizens living on the island and in Russia to fight in the ongoing war in Ukraine. The Cuban Ministry of Foreign Affairs says it is working to dismantle the ring and bring those responsible to justice. Thus far, Moscow, Cuba's one-time communist ally, has been quiet. Here to help us understand what this all means is Chris Simmons, a former counterintelligence officer whose expertise is Cuban spycraft. Welcome, Chris, to the program
9: thank you for having me
12: so what's your sense of why cuba is making this accusation so
9: publicly i think the easy short explanation is because they got caught once again this is just the latest in a long series of criminal enterprises run by the cuban government and anytime they've gotten caught historically their first act is to deny it and then imprison some individuals as proof that they had no knowledge. So really covering their tracks in your view. Correct. And this has been, this type of endeavor has been going on for about 60 years, starting with terrorist support and then them serving as the proxies for intelligence efforts on behalf of Russia and others, drug trafficking. So it's just, it's an institutionalized criminal enterprise by the the Havana government.
12: Now Cuba has made it very publicly clear, or at least try to say, that they have nothing to do with the war in Ukraine, that they had nothing to do with these recruits uh, of Cubans to go fight in the war. Is that about placating the U.S. and telling the U.S. we're not involved?
9: It goes back to the their deniability. Cuba is a police state, and they proudly boast that a million Cuban residents are part of what's called the Committees in Defense of the Revolution, which is essentially a neighborhood snitch program. So the idea that someone could be running a mercenary ring without the government's knowledge is is ludicrous. It's absolutely impossible for major criminal enterprises to exist without the Cuban government's knowledge and involvement.
12: So it doesn't ring true to you, but does the public announcement from Cuba suggest at all that there are cracks in the long relationship
9: between Cuba and Russia? The Yes, because there was also, Cuba had good relations with the Ukraine as well. And so before this became public, there had been some intense disc- media coverage on Ireland debating the pros and cons of staying out of any aspect of the war in Ukraine since both are allies.
12: Does Cuba need Russia? I mean, will this impact their relationship? I mean, this is a relatively isolated place. It's one of the few remaining communist countries. It's facing its worst economic crisis in decades.
9: They absolutely do need Russia. The Cuban economy remains devastated and the Russians have been their biggest and most generous supporter. And now, unlike the Cold War, they have a chance to play Russian aid off against Chinese aid. So they're in a very strong economic and political position, and they absolutely need Russia.
12: Will this impact their relationship, though, publicly accusing Russia of this?
9: The I think there'll be some short-term implications, but long-term, it won't have any effect at all. That was former
12: counterintelligence officer Chris Simmons. Thank you, Chris.
9: Thank
11: you. A lot of people have tested positive for COVID lately, among them First Lady Jill Biden. Amid that surge, we have some useful news. New data show a variant of the virus is unlikely to pose a big threat. Here's NPR health correspondent Rob Stein.
6: When scientists first spotted the new variant, known as BA-286, it set off alarm bells, even though it's rare. That's because BA-286 had mutated like crazy, on par with the original Omicron, which caused a massive surge, raising fears BA-286 could sneak around the immunity people had from all their infections and vaccinations and cause yet another huge deadly wave. Ben Morell has been studying the variant at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. When something heavily mutated comes out of nowhere,
2: and there's a lot of uncertainty, and there's this risk that it's dramatically different, and then it changes
6: the nature of the pandemic. But the first studies to analyze how well our immunity can neutralize the variant came out over the weekend and indicate BA.286 is unlikely to be another game changer. At least four preliminary laboratory experiments found that antibodies people have in their blood from getting vaccinated or infected with one of the more common variants that are already circulating widely can block BA.286. Moderna said Wednesday, its booster generates a strong response to the variant. For two point eight six, the initial antibody neutralization results suggest that history is not repeating itself
2: here. Its degree of antibody evasion is quite similar to recently circulating variants. It
13: seems
6: unlikely that this will be a seismic shift for the pandemic. Because, it turns out, two eight six doesn't look like it's any better than any of the other variants at evading the immune system. In fact, it appears to be even less adept at escaping from antibodies than other variants and may also be less efficient at infecting cells. Dr. Dan Baruch has been studying the variant at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston.
3: VA 2.86 actually poses either similar or less of an immune escape risk compared with current circulating variants. Not more. So that is good news. That is reassuring. It does bode well for
6: the vaccine. The Food and Drug Administration is expected to approve new vaccines soon that target a more recent Omicron subvariant than the original shots. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention will then recommend who should get them. While that subvariant, called XBB15, has already been replaced by others, it looks like a close enough match to protect people. Dr. Peter Hotez at the Baylor College of Medicine hopes as many people as possible will get the new vaccines as quickly as possible. I wish the booster was already out. That's my only concern, is we need it now because yet another wave of infections has already begun, increasing the number of people catching the virus and getting so sick that they're ending up in a hospital and dying. Rob Stein, NPR News.
11: this is NPR News.
0: Thanks for starting your morning with WBUR. You can listen to us on your drive to work or school or on the T. Just download the WBUR app. It lets you listen anywhere as well as pause or rewind. Get it in your app store today. Coming up at the top of the hour, we hear about the debate among legal scholars over whether a clause in the 14th Amendment disqualifies Donald Trump from running for president again. Near 90 today, as our heat wave continues, it'll also be humid and sunny. It falls to the low 70s tonight under clear skies. Even hotter tomorrow in the low to mid 90s, and it'll be sunny. Right now, it's 76 degrees in Boston. And a shout out to students heading out to their first day of classes in places like Belmont, Brockton, and Norwood. Have a great first day of school.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management. Committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And the Huntington Theatre, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, opening September 7th. Tickets at huntingtontheater.org.
0: Berkshire Bank is opening a new division aimed at providing services to the cannabis industry. Many banks are skeptical of the industry, which is legal on the state level, but not at the federal level. The Boston-based bank says it'll provide cash pickups, wire services, and debit cards to those businesses. Bank leaders say they want to be part of what they call a growing industry in the state. The state agency that oversees Logan Airport and Boston's Seaport has started a search for its new leader. The Boston Globe reports that Massport is looking for a firm to vet CEO candidates. The current CEO, Lisa Wieland, is leaving in November to take a job with National Grid. The Tiki Island restaurant in Medford is shutting down after 40 years in business. Its owners say they're selling the operation because running a restaurant is hard work. The Polynesian-themed restaurant is expected to close within a month. It's
7: 7.44. Hi, I'm Lauren Summer. I cover climate change at NPR, so
12: I'm particularly interested in the surge of interest in electric cars. If your next car is going to be electric, be sure to donate your old car to this station.
7: You'll be doing your part to lower your carbon footprint, and we'll turn your old car into more coverage of everything that matters to you. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at ajws.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort, More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Insky.
12: And I'm Leila Faldel. This next story is about the mistreatment of children. A Utah mom who racked up millions of followers for her parenting videos has been charged with six felony counts of aggravated child abuse. Ruby Frankie is an influencer who created the popular YouTube channel Eight Passengers. It documented the big family's daily life. But viewers took note of Frankie's often harsh approach to discipline. Frankie was arrested last week after her 12-year-old son escaped to a neighbor, apparently malnourished and asking for food and water. NPR's Emily Olson has been covering the story, and she takes it from here.
15: Right. So like you said, Frankie's 12-year-old son climbed out of the window of a house um, in the town of Ivins, Utah, and ran over to a neighbor's home. He was asking for food and water, and the neighbor noted that he had duct tape around his ankles and wrists. Uh, Police added that he had deep lacerations on some of his limbs. It appeared as if he'd been tied up with a rope. Police then searched the home where he had escaped from, and they found um, several other children. So in total, they took four kids into custody of Child Protective Services, and that's uh, the four kids that Frankie still has at home. Two of her other kids are adult children.
12: And this home belonged to her business partner, and this is where the arrest took place?
15: That's correct, yeah. So she was at her business partner's home, Jody Hildebrandt,
12: Can you tell us a little more about Eight Passengers and what made it so popular? So at
15: its peak, Eight Passengers had about 2.3 million subscribers, which most of Frankie's videos, you know, they're pretty mundane. But some of the most popular content, the stuff that got the most views, was when that, you know, suburban banality kind of verged onto something more intimate or maybe a little more vulnerable. And a lot of that was when Frankie was disciplining her kids.
12: Hmm. And what types of things was she doing that got criticism?
15: You know, in one video, Frankie's son, who was 15 years old at the time, said that he'd been sleeping on a beanbag chair for seven months because he'd been kicked out of his room for playing a prank on his younger brother. And another video, Frankie says she refused to bring food to her daughter, who was six years old at the time.
8: I just got a text message uh, from his teacher, and... She said that Eve did not pack a lunch today. I responded and just said, Eve is responsible for making her lunches in the morning. So the natural outcome is she's just going to need to be hungry. What do
12: we know about what happens next? I know her oldest daughter welcomed the news that she was arrested. Do we know anything about where the case goes from here?
15: Sherry Frankie is her daughter, she's about 20 years old. She posted on Instagram, like you said, um, and added that she had been reaching out to CPS about this for a while. She had publicly said that she um, had stopped speaking with her mom. We don't know exactly what happens yet. Um, As far as we know, Frankie and Hildebrandt are still in custody. We reached out to Frankie's husband and her husband's lawyer, neither of whom responded to us.
12: NPR's Emily Olson, thanks so much for your reporting. Thank you. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we'll meet the Icelandic musician Leve. The 24-year-old says she's on a mission to reclaim jazz for a younger generation. Her new album is called Bewitched. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fulton. And I'm
0: Steve Inskeep. Coming up at 8.20 on WBOR's Morning Edition, North Carolina Democrats have elected the party's youngest state chair in the nation. 25-year-old Anderson Clayton's goal is to attract more rural voters. It's 7.49.
12: Morning Edition from NPR News doesn't just tell you what's happening across the country and around the world. We go there so you can listen to it for yourself, whether it's rafting, surging rivers in California.
21: Dig in! Keep going! Yoo-hoo!
12: Or taking you to a legendary crab derby in Maryland.
2: you got a squirt bottle behind you and a
12: bobber, okay? Go there every weekday with Morning Edition from NPR News.
0: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
7: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. And Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day. GoddardHouse.org.
0: Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Ukraine today to show support for the country's counteroffensive against Russia. The former leader of the right-wing extremist group the Proud Boys has been sentenced to 22 years in prison for his role in the January 6 attack on the Capitol. And Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton pleaded not guilty yesterday at the start of his impeachment trial on accusations of corruption. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
10: WBUR supporters include Johnson & Wales University. Think you know JWU? From nursing to graphic design, let Johnson & Wales surprise you. More at jwu.edu.
0: Sunny, humid and hot today with temperatures that may reach 90. Tonight clear skies and low 70s, tomorrow low to mid 90s and it'll be sunny.
11: Right now it's
12: 76 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin.
11: And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The way America shops has changed over the years, which you can see in what's left of our shopping malls. A short distance from my home, a whole shopping center has just been torn down in the last few months. One industry group forecasts that at least a quarter of malls in this country will close in the next few years. Dina Pritchett reports from a mall in Portland, Oregon, that is trying to figure out what comes next. The Marshalls at Lloyd Center
2: was a classic anchor store, 32,000 square feet, two stories. Full disclosure, it's where I bought my sheets. But now, there are no racks of discount jeans. There are kids.
3: Just, can you pick out the
2: shooting arrows, sewing their own clothes, making movies. Tony Dice is the founder of Trackers Earth, an organization which used to be known as an outdoor camp. Now they're also at the mall.
24: We had somebody tell us to check out the Lloyd Center. And at first I was like, wait a minute, what?
2: Then he realized it made a lot of sense for kids and their parents.
24: They want good parking and this is the place to do it. But as time goes by, sometimes during the summer we're gonna have warmer weather events. And we might even have days where the AQI due to forest fires isn't great.
2: And the ghost of an old department store makes a lot of sense for that. The Lloyd Center, like malls across the country, has lost major tenants. But alongside the empty storefronts, there's a new independent comic store, the occasional roller derby pop-up, and a theater performance in what used to be a Victoria's Secret. Turns out the rotunda where the bras were displayed has surprisingly good acoustics.
25: What a joy in any case to know you are there, as usual, and perhaps awake.
2: (laughs) Diane Condrat is playing Winnie in this Samuel Beckett play. She spends the entire performance in front of what used to be the fitting rooms. This sort of reimagining of the mall is happening across America, because America has a lot of malls.
5: I think almost any
2: expert you talk to is going to say, we overbuilt the malls. Ellen Dunham Jones directs the urban design program at Georgia Tech. She says America has twice as much mall space per capita as any other country in the world. We're at a point now where more than a third of the 1,500 properties are no longer functioning as malls. Some have just been bulldozed, but some have been filled with things you can't get online. So we start to see more gyms, more grocery stores. But in general, really the number one reuse of malls has been to just convert them to office space. Healthcare and education compete for the number two spot. But Dunham Jones says you also see housing and paintball. There's a mall in Massachusetts that their former Macy's is going to have cultivation of marijuana on the second floor and retail sales on the first floor. Buying weed or seeing an existential play where you used to do back to school shopping can be an enjoyably disorienting experience. But can that bring in the money to maintain these giant buildings and giant parking lots? At Portland's Lloyd Center, Kristen Kennedy showed up on a Friday afternoon to see a performance piece at the mall's skating rink. You can see that there's a infinity symbol carved into the ice. That's part of the bigger thing in this particular mall where artists have been taking over some spaces. Kennedy is the artistic director at Portland's Institute for Contemporary Art. She appreciates how the mall is taking the bones of what's left behind and playing around, building something new. And. Yeah, that feels like America, like failure and invention simultaneously. Maybe, like many malls, this one can't be saved. Or maybe it'll remain a haven for creativity, or office space, or something we can't even yet imagine. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchup in Portland, Oregon.
12: We pay tribute now to Tony Award-winning costume designer Franny Lee. She created the looks of some of the first characters on Saturday Night Live, including the Coneheads and Killer Bees. She also worked on Broadway and helped bring Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of Fleet Street, to life. Lee died last week in Florida at 81. NPR's Elizabeth Blair has this appreciation.
25: Franny Lee once said she had no fear of designing without money. She said it makes you more creative, and in the early years of SNL, she had to get very creative.
14: Hello, I'm Baba Wawa.
25: For Baba Wawa, a parody of journalist Barbara Walters, Lee gave Gilda Radner a plaid blouse and vest. Lee said she made lots of visits to Goodwill to find costumes for SNL. For Radner's nerdy Emily Latella on Weekend Update, it was a prim red sweater.
5: What's all this fa- i keep hearing
16: about violins on television
25: and for the cone heads it was pretty self-evident bare flesh-colored towering cones
4: i am Beldar. this is Primat and connie i trust we have arrived at the pre-designated time coordinates
25: last year in an interview with the podcast ian talks comedy lee told ian from English she liked the camaraderie on the show but wasn't always nuts about the material
12: I didn't like a lot of the
5: writing, <laughs> to be honest with you. I thought some of it was good, but I thought
23: it was very
25: work. Throughout her career, Frannie Lee collaborated with her spouse set designer Eugene Lee. They both won Tony Awards for their work on the Broadway musical Candide. Later, they designed the look of Sweeney Todd, starring Angela Lansbury. Now let's stop all this foolish chatter and just sit here nice and quiet. Franny Lee's papers are at the New York Public Library. Theater curator Doug Reside said that Lee found ideas in vintage cartoon images from the satirical magazine Punch.
17: I think that's kind of actually representative of Franny's work, that she tends to take uh, something that's sort of silly and comic and bring a kind of seriousness to it.
25: Later in life, she spent time painting and started an artist co-op. Her daughter, Stacy Sandler, tells NPR her mom loved creating costumes out of found pieces, rags, and other things. She says even when she had bigger budgets to play with, Franny Lee was always looking for the deal. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. <laughs>
12: This afternoon on All Things Considered, The Beauty of Sadness. NPR's John Hamilton reports on why we're attracted to art that explores human sorrow. To listen, ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falded. And I'm Steve Inskeep.
0: A heat advisory is in effect in central mass through tomorrow. We'll have temperatures near 90 today and in the low to mid-90s tomorrow. It'll be sunny and humid both days and will only cool off to the low 70s at night. Right now it's 76 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. Former leader of the right-wing Proud Boys group has been sentenced to 22 years in prison for orchestrating a failed plot to keep former President Donald Trump in power. It's Wednesday, September 6th. This is War's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, some legal experts argue that after four indictments, a clause in the Constitution disqualifies Trump from running for president again.
26: There is this textual commitment in the Constitution, it exists, it's something that should be reckoned with in this moment, given the stakes.
0: Also this hour, President Biden heads to the G20 summit with plans to strengthen the World Bank to counter China's influence. And Massachusetts restaurants are trying to control the population of invasive green crabs by putting them on the menu. It's
23: definitely been something where once one chef starts
0: getting excited about it, they go around to their network. Um, and more chefs start getting excited about it. Sunny, humid, and near 90 today. It's 8.01. Now the news.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Coleman. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Kiev today holding high-level talks. He's honoring Ukrainian soldiers lost in the war with Russia. And NPR's Brian Mann reports he's delivering another $1 billion
1: in U.S. aid. Blinken arrived in Ukraine's capital city after a noisy night as Kyiv's air defenses rumbled overhead. Ukrainian officials say they successfully intercepted a barrage of Russian cruise missiles. After a train ride from the Polish border, Blinken met first with Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleva. We want to make sure that
11: Ukraine has what
1: it needs not only to succeed in the counteroffensive, but has what it needs for the long term to make sure that it has a strong deterrent. Blinken is announcing another billion dollars in military, humanitarian, and economic aid. He's also meeting with Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, who's just returned from visiting troops fighting on the front lines. Brian Mann, NPR News, Kiev. U-
4: U.S. lawmakers face a deadline this month to pass legislation to keep federal agencies funded through the next fiscal year. NPR's Windsor-Johnston reports any agreement on government spending is likely to be challenged by a group of Republican hardliners in the House.
5: Members of the House Freedom Caucus are pushing to cut government spending levels to an estimated $120 billion less than what House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden agreed to earlier this year. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says this far-right faction of Republicans would be to blame if lawmakers are unable to reach a deal.
21: All sides must work together in good faith without engaging in extremist or -or all-or-nothing tactics. Look no further than the example we've set here in a bipartisan way in the Senate.
5: Failure to reach an agreement by September 30th could trigger the fourth
4: partial shutdown of federal agencies in a decade. Windsor-Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Sweltering heat has cut short many students' first day back to school. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports on some early school dismissals.
23: Schools along the East Coast and in parts of the Midwest changed their schedules, in some cases sending students home early due to heat advisories and lack of air conditioning. Districts in New Jersey, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin called for a half day on Tuesday to get students home before the temperatures peaked. At some schools in Pittsburgh and Baltimore, students were told to stay at home and log on for virtual learning. Many schools across the country don't have adequate AC to rely on. A 2020 report from the Government Accountability Office found that 41% of school districts need to replace their HVAC systems in at least half of their schools. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News.
4: President Biden speaks to union members and West Coast port operators today at the White House. Port workers have ratified a new contract. This is NPR. The Texas State Senate will continue the impeachment trial of Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton today. He's accused of several counts of corruption. Paxton denies them all and says the impeachment action is politically motivated. The first witness yesterday was a former aide who reported his alleged actions to the FBI. The state of Alabama says it's getting ready to ask the U.S. Supreme Court to once again weigh in on a congressional redistricting fight that the state lost back in June. As NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports, the extraordinary move is part of a long-running battle over the political power of black voters in that state.
24: This appeal by Alabama's Republican state officials to the U.S. Supreme Court could turn this lawsuit back into a vehicle for testing the conservative justice's appetite for undoing the court's past rulings on protections for voters of color in a key section of the Voting Rights Act. Alabama Republicans have suggested they believe they can flip the vote of conservative Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Who, back in June, joined Chief Justice John Roberts and the court's three liberal justices in upholding a lower court ruling that calls for a map with two districts where black voters have a realistic opportunity of electing their preferred candidate. Maps approved by Alabama have only included one such district. Hanzi LeWong, NPR News
4: results are in from Rhode Island's primary elections held yesterday. The winner of the Democratic contest for the U.S. House is former White House aide Gabe Amo. He beat 10 other candidates. This fall, he will face the winner of yesterday's Republican primary election, Gary Leonard, who is a Marine veteran. I'm Corva Coleman, NPR News. From Washington.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Ruth Bushinoy. Massachusetts residents should soon see more consistency between their summer and winter electric bills. The state has ordered the three electric utilities to raise or lower electric rates on a new schedule. WBUR's Miriam Wasser explains.
6: In
7: Massachusetts, if you are on your utility's basic supply rate, your rate changes twice a year. Under the current schedule, the two most expensive months, January, and February, are in the same rate cycle. This is partly why winter rates tend to be so much higher than summer rates. To help reduce this volatility, the state is requiring utilities to switch rates on a new schedule. One cycle will be February through July, the other August through January. The change doesn't necessarily mean that your bills will be lower overall, but the spike in winter prices should be less severe. The changes will be phased in over the next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. The Massachusetts Attorney General today plans to
0: announce the list of questions that will move closer to being on next year's ballot. If approved, the questions will need 75,000 signatures from voters. 42 ballot initiative petitions were filed this year. One proposal would legalize natural psychedelics. Another would implement rank choice voting in certain elections. Police are investigating an incident of racist vandalism in South Boston. Investigators tell the Boston Herald an electric construction sign was changed Monday to say, quote, KKK meeting today. The sign belongs to a private construction company. Police say they're investigating whether the sign was hacked or possibly tampered with by an employee. It's
10: 8.07. WBUR supporters include EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users. Anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com.
0: The Red Sox fell to the Tampa Bay Rays in 11 innings last night. The final in St. Petersburg was 8-6. to The teams will meet again tonight. There's a heat advisory in effect today for areas west of I-95. It'll be mostly sunny and humid with a high near 90. Clear overnight with temperatures only falling to around 70. Sunny tomorrow and in the lower 90s. Right now it's 77 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
12: And I'm Leila Faudel. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un will reportedly travel to Russia this month to meet President Vladimir Putin over a possible weapons deal. Closer ties could give the isolated North a more prominent international position, while Russia stands to gain help with its war effort in Ukraine. For more, let's turn to Lieutenant General Inbam Chun. He's a former special forces commander for the Republic of Korea and senior fellow with the Association of the United States Army. Good morning and thanks for being on the program.
20: Good morning. Thank you for the invitation.
12: So what is North Korea hoping it can get from Russia by strengthening this relationship?
20: Mainly, uh, I fear that the North Koreans are seeking high technology to improve their ICBM capabilities Uh, to be able to have a nuclear capability that can threaten the entire world.
12: Mm. Now, the U.S. has warned North Korea that they would pay a high price if they provided weapons to Russia. Would a warning like that impact their decisions at all?
20: Unfortunately not. The North Koreans know that uh, the free world has public opinion to worry about. For them, they have no such worries, and they have nuclear weapons right now. So... um, they will do what they need to do uh, from their point of view. And uh, all of this uh, hardline talking will not stop them.
12: What is Russia hoping to get out of this?
20: They will get some really good conventional weapons. Hmm. The North Koreans are not stupid. Uh, they can make very good conventional weapons, rockets, anti-tank weapons. Uh, they don't make airplanes, but they really make good drones. If you notice, all those Iranian drones and North Korean drones look really similar. Uh, If they, you know, if it quacks like a duck, it is a duck. Mm. So the cooperation with the Iranians has given the North Koreans the ability to make these great uh, uh, platforms as well. So there's a lot of conventional stuff that the Russians can get from the North Koreans.
12: What does it say about Russia and its war in Ukraine that it's turning to North Korea for help?
20: Well, I guess the Russians bit off a little bit more than they expected, and uh, they're getting um, you know, MREs, uh, combat food from the Chinese, and now uh, weapons from the North Koreans, and so they're in a situation where they're using every card that they have, and it has implications for everybody, especially those living on the Korean Peninsula.
12: Now, you mentioned earlier that North Korea may get technical help with its nuclear and ballistic missile programs. Um, Is that the goal here? I mean, what is the ultimate goal with getting this type of help on North Korea's part?
20: Well, if we dig in a little bit uh, closer, deeper, uh, the North Koreans want a first strike, second strike capability. And nuclear propulsion for their submarines is something that they've been trying to get. So that's one thing reentry technology for their ICBMs, precision uh, enhancement for their missiles, some sort of uh, intelligence uh, cooperation. But all of these are very difficult to uh, track, so God knows what they will be uh, getting.
12: That's Lieutenant General In Bam Chun. He's a former Special Forces Commander for the Republic of Korea and Senior Fellow with the Association of the United States Army. He joined us by Skype. Thank you so much, General.
20: Thank you.
11: Does a clause in the U.S. Constitution disqualify former President Trump from returning to the White House? Some legal scholars point to the 14th Amendment, which refers to insurrection or rebellion. On ABC, Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia pointed to Trump's bid to overturn his election defeat on January 6, 2021.
13: The attack on the Capitol that day was designed for a particular purpose at a particular moment, and that was to disrupt the peaceful transfer of power as is laid out in the Constitution. So I think there is a powerful argument to be made.
11: Kim Whaley has explored that argument. She's a constitutional law scholar at the University of Baltimore. David Frum calls the argument a fantasy. He's a former presidential speechwriter who now writes for The Atlantic. Our colleague Daniel Estrin spoke with them both.
24: Kim, let's start with you. I want to read from Amendment 14, Section 3 of the Constitution, paraphrasing here that no person shall hold any office, civil or military, where they've taken an oath to support the Constitution, if they have, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. How does this apply to former President Trump?
26: Well, the argument is that this post-civil war amendment to the constitution which was designed to keep former confederates out of office with the concern that they would sort of contaminate reconstruction and make it difficult for the country to heal and come together after the civil war that this operates today to keep people who engaged in the january 6 insurrection at the capitol out of office and that former president donald trump qualifies as an officer of the United States within the meaning of the 14th Amendment.
24: And how practically could that work? How do you enforce this amendment then?
26: That's the big question. I I think the closest precedent is from a state court judge in New Mexico who used that language to disqualify a county commissioner from his elected position because that individual had been convicted of criminal trespass on January 6th. But that, of course, assumes that there are people within the election process that are willing to do that. And then what would the standard be for insurrection? Does it have to go to a jury trial? Do you need a criminal conviction? All of those questions are unanswered under the Constitution, but that's not unusual for the Constitution. Courts fill those blanks in all the time. So let me turn to you, David. Why don't you think that Donald Trump's activities
24: on January 6th and beyond uh, disqualify him?
21: That's not the real-world question. If we lived in a world where this scheme could work, we wouldn't be in trouble. Because we're in trouble, this scheme won't work. I mean, I invite people to consider what happens on the next day. Let's suppose that a secretary of state in one or more swing states says, you know what, I have the power to exclude anyone who, having previously taken an oath to the United States, engaged in what I regard as insurrection. I'm keeping Donald Trump off the ballot. And Joe Biden wins the presidency with a majority of the electoral vote in the states because Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot. Is that election accepted? Or do you have actually civil disorder on a scale hard to imagine right now? It is precisely because Donald Trump is on his way to being the nominee of a major party. Precisely because very large numbers of your fellow citizens regard his behavior as acceptable. That's why we're in trouble. The part of the country that is supporting these illegal undemocratic measures is going to have to be confronted But you do it through what the video gamers would call a cheat code and you simply perpetuate the problem we have now. Kim, is David missing something here?
26: I mean, I just think that there's a faith in the electoral process that perhaps has failed us in this moment and that the framers of the Constitution did include Section 3. I mean, it exists. And, you know, I don't have confidence that it's worth the gamble to see if the process is going to work in the old fashioned way and getting people out to vote and having, in this instance, the front runner with 60% of the Republican voter base kind of just hope at the edge of our seats that democracy is going to prevail and not have put someone like that in office. Um, because, in my view, if that
21: happens, it's over. What I'm worried about is what if the 14th Amendment people win? Do you think the plurality of Americans who have voted for Donald Trump in an election that he would have won are going to say, oh, you know, you said the magic words. I guess we're beaten. I guess we'll go home. That's not what happens. It is an example of how magical thinking prevents us from dealing with the real problems democracy has. We don't have an agreement that what happened on January 6th was an insurrection. I believe it. Others believe it. But not everybody believes it. We're leaving it up to Democratic secretaries of state to try their hands at this. It's a reckless project. And it distracts people from the real work they have to do, which is to make sure that you are signed up to drive your friends and neighbors to the polls to save your country from a threat to democracy that isn't going to be stopped by magic words. Kim?
26: You know, I don't disagree at all with the suggestion that this would cause tremendous civil unrest, but I'm not sure any Democrat moving forward, even if it's a legitimate election, is going to be accepted by millions of Americans that are buying widespread lies and misinformation coming out of Donald Trump and a big component of the Republican Party. But there is this textual commitment in the Constitution, it exists. It's something that should be reckoned with in this moment, given the stakes, if in fact, as David says, Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is reelected, whether legitimately or illegitimately. That would be, in my mind, the end of American democracy, given his stated plans for what he will do to the federal government with a cadre of loyalists, making very clear that they're not willing to adhere to the electoral process in the Constitution with fidelity in the way that federal officials have to date.
24: If the U.S. fails to employ this constitutional provision, does this expose the U.S. to long-term
26: harm? I don't think so. I do think we're at a fraught moment in American democracy, but I don't think it turns on whether Section 3 plays a role in the next election or not. I think the problems are much bigger and more complex than that. David, last word.
21: I think American democracy has been in harm unprecedented since the Civil War, since June of 2015 when Donald Trump declared himself a candidate. But I also think there's a paradoxical gift of Donald Trump, which is that he's a summons to everybody to be a better citizen, to be more involved, to rediscover why democracy is important, to rediscover what you believe in. And you have to act on those beliefs and not look for any magic wishing spell to save you.
24: David Frum, senior editor with The Atlantic, thank you so much. Thank you. And Kim Whaley, constitutional law scholar at the University of Baltimore. Thanks for being here.
26: Thank you for having me.
11: NPR News.
0: Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. You're starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, students across the country returning to schools without air conditioning are suffering amid a heat wave. It's 819.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Solar Gardens, supporting local clean energy and accessing the benefits of solar power through off-site solar fields. Learn more at solargardensma.com. protesters and some Asian governments object to the release of
2: radioactive wastewater from the tsunami-ravaged Fukushima nuclear plant. So why is Japan dumping it in the ocean?
9: Because everybody's doing it. China's doing it. South Korea's doing it. The U.S., France, the U.K. And it's much, much worse than what's happening in Japan.
2: That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's
5: NPR news station.
0: Sunny and humid today with a high near 90. There's a heat advisory in effect for areas west of I-95. Tonight, skies stay mostly clear and temperatures fall to lows around 72. Tomorrow, early morning fog will be followed by a sunny day with a high near 94. Right now, it's 77 degrees in Boston.
7: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From Focus Features with My Big Fat Greek Wedding 3, the Portokalos family is headed to Greece. From director Nia Vardalos and featuring the original cast, only in theater September 8th. From Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity, learn more at paycom.com slash radio. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
7: And I'm Leila Faldil.
12: Young voters and rural voters are two groups President Biden is targeting in 2024. That mission is top of mind for North Carolina Democratic Party Chair Anderson Clayton.
27: I get asked all the time, like, how are you a young person that's voting for this guy? And I'm like, because he's the only president that's ever looked at a place like where I'm from and said, I believe in that. At 25, she's the youngest state party chair in the country. Coming from a small
18: town, as NPR's Elena Moore reports, this fight is personal for her. Anderson Clayton has a long to-do list, but when we catch yeah, her, oh she's God. trying to find a cucumber in her father's garden.
27: I really don't see one. The garden is nestled
18: behind her childhood home in Roxboro, North Carolina, a town about an hour outside Raleigh. Music plays in the shed nearby.
27: My dad says it chases away the deer.
18: Clayton is proud to be from a small town and rural community, and she doesn't want to see these parts of the country left behind.
27: Rural areas right now are dying, and like people for years have just sat there and said, y'all deserve that.
18: Despite being state Democratic
27: Party chair, Clayton isn't afraid to call out party
18: problems. She says Democrats have taken young voters for granted and neglected rural voters. So ahead of 2024, she's pushing for North Carolinians of all backgrounds to give the party another chance.
27: The job that I have this year is to make people understand how it's impacting them now and changing the narrative about what it means to live in a rural community. And I think that that's also a really powerful message to someone that's from it.
18: Part of her pitch is going all-in on President Biden and the infrastructure law. According to the White House, North Carolina is getting nearly $5 billion for things like transportation, clean water, and high-speed
27: broadband. Joe Biden is the first president in 50 frickin' years that said, hey, if you live in a rural area deserve to have a future, it's a mindset shift of like, no, no matter where you live, you deserve to have the best of everything because that is what humanity calls for.
18: Republicans still win in North Carolina. Trump narrowly won the state in 2020. Plus, in the midterms, they made big gains on the state level. And Democrats have long looked to cities and suburbs for reliable voters.
2: But in most states, that's not going to add up to a win. In North Carolina and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, if that's the only place where you are moving votes, you're not going to be able to win statewide.
18: That's Sarah Janes, the executive director of Rural Democracy Initiative. She says that local outreach to rural voters must be prioritized. Clayton agrees. After Democrats left more than 40 seats uncontested in the last election, she's working to put a Democrat on
27: the ballot in every state House and Senate race in 2024. So we're going heavy on candidate recruitment in communities of color. We're trying to make sure that county parties, especially in majority minority counties, are active and organizing and have the support that they need and the resources that they need. And also trying to talk to our HBCUs and our college students about getting organized. But making connections with voters takes time, especially after years of feeling left
18: behind. I do wonder sometimes if for some people it's too late. Vashti Hinton-Smith is with the left-leaning group Common Cause. She runs their civic engagement program at historically black colleges and universities within the state. She's cautiously optimistic about the future, but says politicians need to play the long game in order to make change. Let's also look out like four more years past, like 2028, right? And like, what does that look like? On the Republican side, they plan to cede no ground.
10: As a Republican Party, we have to focus on all demographics.
18: That's Republican State House Majority Whip John Hardister.
10: You've got to win those voters in the middle. You do that by talking about the issues they care about.
18: Some of those issues include jobs and the economy. I know, Main Street's not only always busy. It's funny today. As Clayton walks around her hometown, she remembers
27: being told that economic opportunity means getting out young people all the time told that you have to leave your small town in order to be able to make a living, like, because there's not enough opportunity.
18: Now, Clayton wants to show North Carolina that Democrats are providing those opportunities, even if the National Democratic Party hasn't figured out a way to tell voters that just yet. Elena Moore, NPR News, Roxboro, North Carolina. This story is one of a two-part series on the country's youngest state party
12: chairs. Tune in tomorrow for the second half. Now, the story of a daring dog in Michigan. Detroit Free Press reporter John Carlisle recently introduced readers to Scout.
1: Nobody knows anything about him. He was just picked up as a stray. The only clue to his age is that he has a little bit of gray in his face.
11: As some of us have, Scout was a resident of the Antrim County Animal Shelter until he broke through the security perimeter.
23: Turns out he can climb chain link fences. So he climbed the seven foot tall chain link fence.
12: Heather Bell director of the animal shelter, says Scout headed for a building across the freeway. He would have
23: crossed
11: M88 highway, which it's a two lane highway, but it still can be pretty busy. Jenny Martinek found Scout the next morning, sleeping on the couch in the lobby of the Meadowbrook nursing home. When he first
28: came here, we put his bed in my office.
12: And then the nursing home returned Scout to the animal shelter. But the next day, Scout came back. They returned him again. And he came back again the very next day.
25: For some reason, he was just drawn over here.
11: Stephanie Elsie also works at Meadowbrook.
25: Scout being here makes it feel much less like an institution and more like a loving family home.
12: Scout started roaming from room to room, visiting residents, getting his black and tan head scratched. Jenny Martinek says he's particularly good at comforting residents who aren't feeling well.
28: We had a resident that he was really close to, and he would go into his room at night and put his cold, wet nose on our resident and wait for him to wake up.
11: Oh, man, the dog is so popular, people are resorting to bribery to get his attention.
28: A few residents keep dog biscuits in their walkers or in their bedside tables, and he knows where he can go to find them. And Scout
12: is so much a part of Meadowbrook now that the nursing home officially adopted him.
28: I can't imagine my life here without him. He's just a part of every part of my day. Some strays have
11: to wait to be found, which is rough. Scout found a home on his own. This is NPR News.
0: Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition, how Massachusetts restaurants are helping control the exploding population of invasive green crabs. It's 829. Use the WBR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store
10: today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Arts. Presenting open studios this Saturday and Sunday, see and shop the creativity that is Cambridge. CambridgeArtsCouncil.org. And Cityside Subaru, introducing the all new all electric Subaru Solterra. On Route 60 in Belmont and at Citysidesubaru.com. Love is now electric.
22: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on an unannounced visit to Ukraine. His trip to Kiev comes days after Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, removed the country's defense minister. Blinken is expected to assess Ukraine's ongoing counteroffensive against Russia's military with Moscow's invasion in its 19th month. NPR's Brian Mann in Kiev has more on Blinken's visit.
1: His big goal is to signal Washington's support for Ukraine, despite questions about the pace of this counteroffensive and the huge cost. Some of that support's going to be tangible. A senior State Department official says Blinken will deliver roughly another billion dollars in new U.S. funding. That includes military, financial and humanitarian aid. And the official said the U.S. also wants to show they're aligned with Ukraine as this war now heads into the fall and winter. Vice President Harris is in Indonesia for the 18th annual
22: East Asia Summit, as the Biden administration seeks to reinforce economic ties with countries in the Indo-Pacific.
26: The United States has an enduring commitment to Southeast Asia and more broadly to the Indo-Pacific. We are a proud Pacific power and the American people have a profound stake in the future of the Indo-Pacific.
22: Harris is on her fourth visit to the region in two years. This is NPR News.
0: From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Chanoi. Research done in part in Boston shows a highly mutated COVID variant is not likely to cause a surge of new infections. Experts from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center took part in the global study on the BA.286 variant. Scientists worried the variant would be similar to the Omicron strain, which caused a surge in 2021, but the study found the new variant is no better at evading human immune systems than most other variants. This November's mayoral election in Woburn will pit the current mayor against the current city council president. Council President Michael Concannon got the most votes in yesterday's preliminary election. He got about 48 percent of the vote. Incumbent Mayor Scott Galvin finished in second place with 33 percent of the vote. 19-year-old Northeastern University student Omar Mohudin finished in third place with 19 percent, meaning he won't move on to the general election. The Worcester Art Museum plans to take a closer look at its collection. Earlier this week, the Manhattan district attorney seized a Roman bronze bust that was looted from Turkey before the museum bought it in the 1960s. The museum says it plans to hire a research specialist to see if anything else was improperly acquired. A nonprofit in Newton is helping families have meaningful conversations about race and equity. Story Starters Family Conversations connects families with a selection of diverse children's books. Caregivers and their kids are then prompted to work through a series of guided conversations on race. Program Director Ellie Axe says the program is for children between the ages of three and eight.
14: The research is really clear on two points. First,
7: that racial bias develops very early in childhood. And second, that speaking to kids about race is healthier for both kids of color and for white kids.
5: So
15: then we ask ourselves, like, what's stopping us? And I think many of us think
2: what's stopping us is that we don't know how to have these conversations.
0: Axe says story starters worked closely with educators of color to design the curriculum. It's a 33.
16: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Welch and Forbes, over 100 years of experience providing customized private wealth management for individuals and families. WelchForbes.com. The Red Sox lost to the Rays eight to six in
0: 11 innings last night in St. Petersburg. The teams will wrap up their series tonight. Boston is five games out of a wild card playoff spot with 23 games left to play. Clear skies and humid today with high temperatures near 90. Areas west of I-95 have a heat advisory in effect. Tonight, temperatures drop to the low 70s and skies stay clear. Tomorrow, the heat wave gets even worse. We'll have highs near 94 and it'll be sunny. Right now, it's 78 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support
7: for NPR comes from this station and from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR.
11: It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep.
12: And I'm Layla Faldin. About 38 million Americans are expected to see temperatures at or above 100 degrees through the end of this week. That's bad news for schools as many students and teachers are back in hot classrooms. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo has been reporting on the concerns about extreme heat and students and joins us now. Good morning, Sequoia. Good morning, Layla. So we talked to you last week about How many schools around the country don't have air conditioning? So I can only imagine this heat wave has made the problem worse. How are students doing?
23: Well, yesterday was the first day of school for many districts. Students went back after Labor Day, ready to meet their teachers and classmates. And around the country, more than a few had to cut the day short. Some schools in Pittsburgh and Baltimore are now telling students to stay at home and conducting lessons virtually. Yesterday, some tried to stick it out, at least for a few hours. Districts in New Jersey, Connecticut, Michigan, and Wisconsin gave students a half day. Many also have half days today. And looking ahead to the rest of the week, the temperatures aren't really changing, so we'll see how many continue to close schools. In Milwaukee, Alice Kirtley's first day of fourth grade ended at 11 a.m. She told WUWM reporter Emily Files that her teachers are trying their best, but the classroom still gets really hot.
6: I have fans and they open the windows a lot so that's pretty good overall but I would I would appreciate air
26: conditioners
12: she would appreciate air conditioners so how common is it uh, no AC in a classroom Well, as far as Milwaukee, the district said about
23: 56% of their schools have some form of air conditioning. But that still leaves almost half without any at all. And we've talked about this before. This is a national issue. According to the Government Accountability Office, an estimated 41% of districts need to update or replace HVAC systems in at least half of their schools. And it's not an easily fixable problem. Big city districts like Baltimore, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh often have pretty old school buildings, sometimes over a hundred years old, that can't handle AC for one reason or another. So they try to find workarounds for what used to be only a handful of really hot days every year. That's where things like early dismissals or switching older students to virtual learning come into play. But this heat wave is setting records all over the country. And what used to be a handful of days is becoming more of a trend that puts pressure on everyone involved, students, teachers, and parents. Here's Philly parent Donna Colazzo talking about it with WHYY reporter Amanda Fitzpatrick.
12: Why can't they just do remote for the rest of the day, you know, or just do remote period if you know you're going to dismiss early? Why bring them all the way in and then say, you know, it's too hot. We can't have you guys here. Now go home. Like it's an inconvenience for parents. Okay, so inconvenient for the parents, kids having to go home in the middle of the day. The stuff you're talking about, obviously not as easy as just plugging in some AC units, but there has to be something that can be done to fix this. It doesn't seem like this is going away, right? Well, the difficult thing is,
23: for some, starting later was the solution. Normally, Philly, for example, starts in August, and this year the district said that they would start after Labor Day, specifically due to increased temperatures and lack of AC in many of their schools. But then, of course, it's so hot this week. I spoke with one teacher at a school without AC who said even on these early release days, everyone is walking out of the building sweaty and exhausted. It's not a great way to get to know your students or set a good tone for the rest of the year.
12: NPR's Sequoia Carrillo, thanks for your reporting. Thank you.
11: Some other news now. President Biden heads to Asia on Thursday, where he will visit India and Vietnam. American strategists have spent a lot of time working to counter the influence of their common neighbor, China. And on this trip, the U.S. is paying attention to a big global institution, the World Bank. Here's NPR White House correspondent Asma Khaled.
5: The World Bank was created in 1944 to help rebuild Europe after World War II. Over the years, its mission has evolved. The bank now funds a lot of programs on things like education, climate, and public health around the globe. These institutions can play a critical role helping to mitigate risk in developing countries and help them create stronger economic systems. That's D.J. Nordquist. She previously represented the U.S. on the board of the World Bank. Historically, the U.S. has been the largest shareholder, but as China's economy has grown, it's begun to throw its weight around the World Bank, becoming the third largest player. At the same time, it created an alternative model to lend money to low-income countries, especially in Africa and Asia.
2: China has created, you know, starting around 2014,
5: a very serious, for lack of a better word, competitor to the World Bank. At the same time, the West kind of lost its focus on the World Bank. That's what Rachel Kite says. She was the former envoy for climate change at the World Bank. Over the last
6: 20 to 30 years, the West, with the US at the heart of it, has underinvested in the infrastructure of the rest of the world. And while We weren't doing that. China really ramped up. She says there's
5: a recognition that the world needs a bigger and better system for lending money to developing countries.
6: All of that requires the U.S. as the largest shareholder to take a lead. And I think that's the message that President Biden's going to India with, which is we're accepting our responsibility and we're going to drive reform. A key proposal Biden is taking
5: to the G20 summit in New Delhi is to beef up and reshape the World Bank. The president is asking lawmakers here at home for $2 billion for this. The thinking is that the investment would ultimately leverage tens of billions of dollars more from other countries. Experts say it's still a fraction of what's needed, but it could be an important first step and one that shows the U.S. remains committed to being a leader in this space. Scott Morris is with the Center for Global Development. In the
9: last six or seven years, President Xi and the Chinese government have made a big show of their multilateral commitments, including creation of new multilateral institutions. And to a large degree until now, I think the U.S. has struggled with how to respond to that.
5: The Biden administration appears to be walking a very fine line, trying to present this as an alternative to China's lending schemes, while also saying this proposal is not about any single country. Take a listen to the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan briefing reporters.
17: Growing the size, relevance, capacity of the World Bank to deliver for low- and middle-income countries is not against China. China.
5: The thing is, when Sullivan announced this plan last month, he described it in part as a strategy to
17: offer a credible alternative to the coercive and unsustainable lending practices of the PRC.
5: The PRC being China, which often saddles low-income countries with debt they cannot repay. Notably, China's leader, Xi Jinping, is not expected to attend the G20. It's the first time he's skipping the event in the decade since he came to power. Rachel Kite, the former World Bank official, told me this group of 20 nations is fractured with Russia's war in Ukraine and growing U.S.-China tensions. This is a difficult moment for multilateralism, but it is essential that the top 20 economies keep meeting. The White House insists it'll make it clear this week it is committed to the G20 as a critical forum for the major economies of the world to continue solving problems together. Asma Khalid, NPR News.
11: This is NPR News.
0: You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about J.C. Penney's plans to spend more than a billion dollars over the next few years to try and revive the 120-year-old department store chain. Near 90 today, as our heat wave continues, it'll also be humid and sunny. It falls to low 70s tonight under clear skies. Even hotter tomorrow in the low to mid 90s, and it'll be sunny. Right now, it's 78 degrees in Boston. And a shout out to students heading out to their first day of classes in places like Braintree, Danvers, Dedham, and Lynn. Have a great
10: first day of school. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, kicking off the new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic. Directed by Huntington Artistic Director Loretta Greco. Two generations of a Parisian family are forced to question their safety and sense of belonging in the city they love. Start September 7th at the Huntington Theatre. Tickets at huntingtontheater.org
0: A new system for filing unemployment claims in the state will go live next week. The state's Labor Department says the new system will be more efficient for employers. Workers will start using the new site in 2025. The CEO, chief medical officer and chief scientific officer of a Cambridge biotech company are all gone in a big shakeup. The leaders at Infinity Pharmaceuticals left last week. Their departure comes after a failed merger with another pharmaceutical company this past summer that led the company to lay off more than 20 workers. It's 8:44.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. And Endless Energy, a certified aero seal installer designed to help homeowners get ready for winter by sealing versus replacing existing ductwork. Go EndlessEnergy.com.
0: This is WBWAR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Chenoy. Climate change is warming the waters off the shores of New England, causing the population of the invasive European green crab to explode. That's threatening other seafood industries that our region and the world depend on. WBWAR's Amanda Beland says one solution is to eat the green crabs,
19: but that comes with some challenges.
21: Fire chowder, fire crab dip.
19: It's a Saturday afternoon at Row 34 in Boston and chef and owner Jeremy Sewell is getting ready to fry up lunch.
22: We'll double dip. We'll get a little more buttermilk and then a little more flour to really get that nice crust on there. And then we're going to drop it right in the fryer.
19: Sewell is preparing a slider made with fresh green crab. It's an invasive species that lives in waters around the world, including here in New England. Over the last year, more and more chefs in this region have cooked up green crabs for their customers. According to Mary Parks, the head of greencrab.org, between this year and last, at least 24 restaurants in the region have had or are currently using green crabs on their menus. That's up from just a couple places last year.
23: It's definitely been, I think, something where once one chef starts getting excited about it, they
19: go around to their network and more chefs start getting excited about it. Green crabs have long been a delicacy in Italy, but chefs here are really just catching on. At Cambridge's Bar Enza, chef Tony Susi is using green crabs weekly to make a stock that ends up in three of his dishes. Susi says he's only been using the crabs since the spring, but he can see how they'd be a good option for a lot of chefs in the future.
21: You want to feel good about what you're doing. A lot of chefs and restaurants in recent years are taking a look at the sustainability of things, be it meat, fish, produce, and,
9: you know, the environmental impact. So, you know, for me, it was a no-brainer.
19: And those environmental impacts are the main reason behind this push to eat this invasive species. One green crab can gobble up to 40 juvenile clams in a single day. They can also burrow into marsh walls and accelerate erosion. But not all of these impacts are new. What is new are the sheer numbers of crabs wreaking havoc. Warming waters because of climate change are allowing green crabs to survive the winter, which means a species that was previously kept in check is now thriving. That overpopulation can easily be seen along coastlines around New England, like on Brave Boat Harbor in York, Maine, where Row 34 gets its green crabs.
24: They make a great sound, don't they? It's like out of a horror movie.
19: That's Mike Macy and he's holding a giant metal trap packed with green crabs. He catches the species with Jeremy Sewell's cousin, Sam Sewell. Green crabs are heavily fished in late spring and in the fall. During this time, every couple of days, the dual empty nearly two dozen traps packed full of loud snappy crabs.
24: That's 40 pounds of green crab and not a single other species. So you can see what they do to biodiversity.
22: When these guys are around and fully established,
24: it's like nothing else
3: has
19: a chance. Green crabs may be fully established in marshes, but when it comes to selling them for food, those markets are really just beginning to form. Wolf's Fish is a major wholesale distributor of green crabs in Massachusetts. They just started doing so last year. Alicia Lumia, director of marketing for Wolf's, says the crabs are affordable. Plus, they pack a flavor punch, she says, which makes them great options for chefs and home cooks. I'm encouraged by how much interest there's been so far. I mean, for something brand new that people aren't used to working with. But it will definitely take more interest, more experimentation, more people being open to trying something new. These days, that experimentation is limited. The majority of the green crab market right now is hard shell crabs. That's what Wolf's is selling. But cracking open that hard shell takes a lot of work and gives you very little meat. Soft-shell green crabs are way more versatile, but few fishermen dabble in catching or selling them. Overall, the market for selling green crabs remains small. Chefs can't use them unless they're caught, and the fishing market won't catch them unless there's demand for them. Back at Row 34, Chef Jeremy Sewell says getting people to try green crabs is an easy sell.
22: You know, everyone will try it once. The trick is to get them to come back for it. And I think so far, so good with green crabs.
19: Sewell says he hopes to keep them on the menu for as long as he can. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beeland.
0: Coming up at the top of the hour on WBR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have a preview of this week's G20 summit in India. It's A50.
10: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Greener U, a design-built climate action firm helping organizations meet their energy, carbon, and climate goals. Learn more at GreenerU.com. And Porter Square Books, author and illustrator Grace Lin presents her new picture book, Chinese Menu, September 10th. Details and registration
11: at PorterSquareBooks.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition.
2: Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR.
11: You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into All Things Considered. It can be turned into
0: Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. The United Nations says this was the hottest summer ever recorded in the Northern Hemisphere. A highly mutated new COVID-19 variant is not the threat scientists previously thought and will likely respond to new boosters. And a federal court has once again struck down voting maps in Alabama for violating civil rights law. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
16: WBUR supporters include Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Sunny, humid, and hot
0: today with temperatures that may reach 90. Right now, it's 79 degrees in Boston.
28: A big test
16: for initial public offerings. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Viking. Exploring the world in comfort, Viking offers a small ship experience with cultural enrichment and destination focused dining. More at viking.com. And by C3AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai.
28: This is Enterprise AI. For Marketplace in Los Angeles, I'm Nova Safo in for David Brancaccio. If there's one thing we learned during the pandemic, it's that computer chips are essential. And a company that designed some of the technology that goes into those chips, it's called Arm, is getting ready for its initial public offering later this year. Thanks to a new regulatory filing, we know Arm is hoping to raise about $4.8 billion. That would make it the largest IPO since 2021. In the last couple of years, the appetite for initial public offerings has eased significantly, and Arm could potentially change that. Here's Marketplace's Justin Ho.
16: Ever
3: since early last year, companies have found plenty of reasons to avoid going public. Russia's invasion of Ukraine, rising interest rates, a possible recession. All that uncertainty hasn't necessarily gone away, but investors have had time to absorb it.
2: It's not as much of a shock as it was last year.
3: That's Avery Speer with Renaissance Capital. As a result, Speer says the IPO market has started to thaw.
2: We have seen more um, $100 million-plus IPOs this year than last, and the year's large issuers have done quite well.
3: Arm is hoping to raise billions with its IPO, which means it'll have to attract a lot of investors. Steve Kaplan with the University of Chicago says if the company's stock rises after it starts trading...
10: That gives investors some confidence that there's investor demand, that the company's okay, and it potentially leads to more IPOs. But if the IPO goes poorly, other
28: companies might decide to stay private. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Let's do the numbers. In Asia, the Shanghai Composite Index rose a tenth of a percent. The FTSE in London is down 6 tenths percent. On Wall Street, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are pointing to a lower open, with Dow futures down about 90 points.
16: Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on, with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help.
28: JCPenney plans to spend more than a billion dollars in the next few years to try to revive the department store chain. The company is more than 120 years old. It emerged from Chapter 11 bankruptcy three years ago. Mark Rosen is the company's chief executive officer. He spoke with David Brancaccio.
29: So what can a JCPenney do for its customers that a big box store or an online giant cannot do for them?
17: Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that question because that's exactly how we started this project. What is it that our customers need and who are our customers and our customers are the core of America, they're hardworking families, they're school teachers, construction workers and medical workers. And what they're looking for is a place to shop where they don't have to make the trade offs that they have to make in their everyday life where they can find great fashion and great brands and still get a great value
29: now i know you have a lot of your attention on online shopping as well but you're still betting on shopping malls and stores that have bricks and cinder blocks that hold them up i know that some of your owners jc owners run malls so that's going to be the way it is but is that still the place you want to be these days
17: it's both an online and an in-store shopping experience i think that many of our customers want to come into the store because they want to see and feel and touch product. They want that try on experience, and they want to be able to do that in the store. They want the help and the advice of associates in putting an outfit together. I'll tell you a couple of weeks ago, I was in stores and a customer came up to me and he was going to a wedding and he was looking for a bow tie. He had never worn a bow tie before, and he needed help finding the bow tie, knowing how to tie it and knowing what to wear it with. And you can only do that in a physical store.
29: Did you say, well, I'm the CEO, or did you just like make sure he got what he needed?
17: (laughs) The customer came up to me and he said, do you work here? And I was walking alone towards the back of the store and I said, actually, I do. How can I help you? And luckily, before I got too far into that bow tie experience, the manager who had been touring the store with me saw that I was with a customer and came running up to help.
29: I know that some government data find that inflation isn't spiking like it did coming out of pandemic but we still have inflation and doesn't inflation drive your customers to ruthlessly look for the absolute cheapest
17: so for our customer inflation is absolutely a stress in their life what we see from the data is a seventy five thousand dollar median household income that household is spending over seven hundred dollars a month more than they spent two years ago on the basics on either rent or mortgage, on gas, on groceries, and that's a real stress on families. What we are providing them with is that shopping experience where they can find those great products, have a great shopping environment, and not have to make that trade-off because it's gonna be at a great price and they know it's great quality.
29: Can you use some of that billion to be sure you have the inventory when someone comes in looking for a size 3430 pants?
17: Right. I think that's critically important. So we really focus on getting the right product for our customer. but We've also focused on in stock and making sure that it's there when the customer comes. If you look at the investment we're making, it's really focused on three areas. It's focused on remodels of the store and store technology. It's focused on a better online shopping experience. And then it's also focused on merchandising and supply chain technology to help us say, where should we place that item? How do we make sure that we have the right size assortment there for the consumer who's shopping that store? And if we don't have it in store, how do we ship it from the fastest place to get it to the customer?
28: Mark Rosen, CEO of
29: JCPenney, thank you
28: very much. Thank you. And thanks to David Brancaccio for that interview. There's word this morning that Google is settling an antitrust lawsuit brought by more than 30 state attorneys general this concerns Google's App Store. There are no details yet on the settlement, which is subject to court approval. Meanwhile, the Federal Trade Commission is reportedly close to suing Amazon, also on antitrust grounds. The agency has been scrutinizing a number of Amazon's practices. In Los Angeles, I'm Nova Sofo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media.